Today's episode of In the Trenches is brought to you by System 12 Guitar Method. Sign up today at RyanRoxy.com. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello, 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 and welcome to a very special episode, a live stream episode of In the Trenches. I am your host, Ryan Roxy. Um, yeah, we are a couple minutes late, folks. It's all right. Simmer down. It's a little bit rock and roll. I didn't expect it <laughs> of all the shows to be, you know, technical difficulties and stuff like that. I thought this one would be right on schedule, but it doesn't matter. Everything does work out in the end, right? Just like in rock and roll. And today, folks, it is, like I said, a very special episode for me um, and going to be for you, definitely, because on the program today, uh, pretty much the most cerebral guest that we've ever had in the trenches. He's a thinker. And how do I know that? Because I've watched him on many of my favorite podcasts, including Joe Rogan, Lex Friedman, and his own podcast called The Portal. So at the end of the day, folks, he's a guitar player as well. So just like you and I, let's warmly welcome into the trenches, Eric Weinstein. Hello, Eric. Hey, wow, this is an incredible thrill. By the way, that was not on Ryan that we're late. It was all on me. I knew I should lay off the Jack Daniels until at least 10 a.m., but, you know, I was a little nervous. You this pulled is a, a change an Axl Rose. I did, not, I did not expect you pulling an Axl Rose on this, but you know what? It wasn't because you just didn't want to come on. We were desperately working behind the scenes to get all the things technical working, and I think they sound good right now, right? Everything. By the way, you know I was in the same grade in elementary school as Saul Hudson. Oh, dude. I know every a lot of stuff about you doing research for this podcast. I oh. realize that you know what? You're a little bit older than me by 2 months. Actually oh. by 1 month. So Then your yeah. hair is fantastic. Sir. Well, thank you very much. Well, the 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 ones down here, up here it's a little suspect. Shh. We don't it's talk little, about that. <laughs> we can talk about it. This is all this all. is all a weave. <laughs> well, you know, that was the thing that immediately uh sort of impressed me about you is that you know we're both well we can start off with a little bit of uh going back to get forward we actually have some animation for that we're going to dive right into the animation eric what do you think about this show because we have it why not we, we do a little go back to get forward and Part of that is uh, just so we could sample a motorcycle, I think. But we're, I think we're both California guys, both California men, right? Born and raised. I am. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I know you've spent enough time up in the Bay Area, but I, I want to say you're more SoCal, but I can't be 100% sure. I am, if, if not, nothing, if not superficial. <laughs> I got you. There is that divide. But see, we grew up, this is what's great about... Um, you being on the program today is that I feel that we both grow up, grew up with the same musical influences, a lot of the same thing, well, exactly the same things going on in our life, in our life during that time. Prop 13, I don't, sure. <laughs> I, I remember Prop 13 like it was yesterday. I didn't have any idea what it was. I just knew that my parents would talk about it and, you know, have millions of discussions about it. But also the thing is, being that we're the same age, are we now the adults in the room? I, Not yet. I, I, I can't accept that. <laughs> no, no, no. We, we still have parental supervision now from a 78-year-old president after a 70... Uh, he, he will uh, be... Is he, I think he's 78 now. 
and we had a 74-year-old president. So I think it's very strange that, weirdly, we are still not the adults in the room. Wow. But, but at one point... Do you think, I mean, right out of the gate, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you uh, some questions because you're one of the biggest commentators on, you know, talk about rock stars, folks. Eric Weinstein is one of the biggest rock stars on the, um, on the interweb, whether you want to call it the, uh, you know, intellectual dark web or whether you want to call it the, well, actually, he actually named that. That's just one of the many things that he's done. But if you want to talk about all social media, Eric Weinstein is one of our biggest rock stars because his views, and I really appreciate you coming onto the show uh, to give these views to a whole new audience today. And like out of the gate, how old should someone be to run the country? Uh, it's really not, I don't think it, uh, I, I don't actually have an issue about age. Uh, I phrase it about age because it's easier for people to hear, but it's really about the same people having been in charge for way too long. And clearly we know that they don't have ideas. We know that they are uh, not well adapted to the current world. They're not particularly technically oriented, either because they grew up before technology or they didn't come from technical fields. And we live in a very technical world. So uh, really, I, my, my feeling is that there's no particularly right age. But I, I do think it would be positive if you expect to live 20 more years to deal with the consequences of your actions in, in office. And I also think that it's important that if you've been on the stage, let's say our current president became a senator when he was 29 years old in the early 1970s, I'm pretty sure if he had something extremely important to tell us, uh, he would have told us by now. And I feel that the last uh, person in the office had uh, a, a huge time on the stage. Um, and I don't know why we're continuing to deal with failed leadership. Well, there you go. I'm, that's just... I'm, I'm just giving you a little bit of a, a taste of what we're going to talk about today, because at the end of the day, rock and roll, the social media, politics, it all kind of goes around in our complete zeitgeist of where we are today. And I do want to talk a lot about music because that the, the theme of the, of the show does have a music sort of uh, thread through it. And the fact of the matter is I was turned on to you because obviously I've seen you um, commentate on the Joe Rogan. I've seen you with Sam Harris. I've seen you with Jordan Peterson. I've, I've literally watched hours and hours of um, interviews just looking at your, listening to your views and, and um, being really impressed by, by what I hear. And I think my rock and roll audience needs to hear a lot of your views as well. But out of the gate, I know that there's a little bit of misconception about how to introduce you at one point, because, you know, when I was trying to get the description for the podcast, I mean, some people, Dave Rubin, for instance, introduces you as a mathematician. Wikipedia says you're a venture capitalist. Logan Paul, who you had the balls to go on that podcast with, that was an interesting show as well, but you did a great job on it. Uh, his description is that you're a genius atheist Christian, whatever that means. So, I mean, how would you describe yourself and, and two people? And I know you get asked this question quite a lot, but just in sort of, I guess, uh, cliff notes form, how would you describe yourself? Well, I went with imposter when I was on Dave Rubin. And I, I kind of like that because I think that uh, distinguishing between an imposter and a fraud is important to me. An imposter is somebody who may not have the credentials to be in a particular location, but has every intention of doing 
as good of a job as they can, if not better than the credentialed. Uh, so you're, you, may, uh, you may steal from the till, but you hopefully are going to put back more than you took by the time uh, the day is over. A fraud is somebody who's just you know, trying to fool you um, in, in an attempt to uh, enrich themselves and, and screw you over. I think that part of why I do that is because we've become extremely worried about anyone uh, deviating from his or her lane. So you hear stay in your lane uh, a lot these days. And with open architecture of the internet, uh, polymaths are particularly terrifying to people because they, they may roam around and opine in areas where they are not expert. And you, of course, have, a, have an issue there where um, you get a benefit from the per fact that the person isn't usually captured by the dominant uh, belief structure in that area, but you, that person has to pay it back uh, by virtue of the fact that they are not, in fact, uh, dedicated experts who stay only there. So in some sense, Ryan, not to be critical, uh, you are an imposter as a broadcaster. I completely, uh, I was just going to say, I'm an, I'm a yeah. podcast imposter, but I do intend, I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't wish I intend to actually become one of the best, at least in my rock and roll field. So, you know, and I'm, I'm listening to guys like you on, on your podcast, the portal to sort of grab tips, uh, every single episode. Well, let me, let me just say one other thing about, uh, the, the concept of the imposter. I've realized that a lot of uh, the world's genius is uh, riding on female shoulders and that women, by and large, have a bigger issue with imposter syndrome because they don't give themselves the same allowances generically to screw up. And so for a while I was going around talking about the need to not worry about imposter syndrome and I don't know that I was very effective. But by embracing the imposter label, one of the hopes was that as a positive externality, uh, a lot of people would say, okay, maybe I'm an imposter too. Now I don't have to worry about imposter syndrome. So the, the secret uh, agenda behind calling myself an imposter is that if we could liberate the amount of uh, intellectual horsepower that's currently inhibited by virtue of people saying, stay in your lane or you, you don't know the topic and you're, you're jawing off, you're a bullshitter, all of that kind of energy, uh, imagine what the world could be like. So if people started to think of imposter as a, a, a wonderful thing, you know, to taking a name like, the, you know, as was done for the word queer and spinning it around and turning it into a positive, then uh, I, I thought that I could do no greater good in the world than to free up all of the people who've been inhibited and, and have not taken their shot uh, on goal. Imposter is no longer a pejorative, folks. Imposter is a good thing. And with that being said, Eric, would you consider yourself an imposter guitarist? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I, uh, I think you contacted me after. I, I think nobody had seen me post um, myself with an electric guitar ever. So uh, First one. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a Mexican Strat and... Uh, an old uh, Princeton Chorus amp, which was not the right amp for me. And I then got a positive grid spark amp on an impulse. And I took my, uh, my guitar in to get it uh, worked on. And holy cow, I, I, I had suffered for decades in a situation where uh, I could have made myself happy with a, under 300 bucks. And I just <laughs> didn't know it. Well, how did how did the guitar find you? I mean, did it find you at a young age? Oh, it's a horrible story. Then horrible please story. do tell. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, it has to do with my grandfather. And I was musically hopeless. Um, and I, I have a child uh, who's musically hopeless and another one that's musically gifted. The musically hopeless child, uh, we could not teach him middle C to say, as soon as we taught him middle C and then we taught him D and E above it, he would forget middle C. <laughs> and um, it has to do with various learning issues in the family. And so my, I took six months of piano lessons, which is a total disaster, nothing happened. And it had to do a lot with symbolic uh, uptake. So my grandfather, who was musical, said, I want to get Eric a guitar. And my mom said, nothing doing. You're going to destroy his self-confidence. There's no ability. And he said, okay, uh, all he needs to do is tune it, and then I'll be happy. He doesn't need to play it. So that was his way around. So he got me a nylon string guitar, which I, I brought just in case I needed to document this. I love it. And, Please do. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I learned to tune it. And, um, and then I started wondering how it worked. And, and theory became my way in. So I couldn't read music. And I couldn't really, I didn't know how to do tablature. Everything symbolic is a huge uh, drain on my brain. Like if I do symbols, I have to sleep for hours, it's, 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 it's really quite horrible. But wasn't setting um, the goal for yourself to tune the guitar, that was a major sort of thing that perhaps maybe your grandfather gave it to you as a challenge? No, he was or? just being devious. He was being devious. He was trying to get around my mom because my mom had an idea in her head that this is just going to be bad. And my grandfather understood that if he could get the guitar into my hands, then I would find my own path. So he was a, he was a, the, the, the self-teacher who teaches self-teachers how to self-teach. Well, you have an interesting Which approach very, with that. You have an interesting yeah. approach to learning music to, uh, and to teaching. I think, uh, you know, it goes against sort of the educational complex, if you will. It, you, you have, I, I know you've talked about it before, and like there is that old saying that, that repetition does learn something. And that whole 10,000 hours to learn something but you necessarily don't agree with that. Oh, well, it's, you know, it, it, that's somebody's process. So it's not, we're not knocking it. It, it works. Um, but it's not everybody's process. And then if it's not your process, do you take away from that that you're, you're less than and deficient? And that's exactly, that's, that's my issue. And, and it's, it's funny because I, I now hang out, hang out with musicians who are way above my pay grade. <laughs> and I don't think they even realize how discouraging what they say can be. You know, for example, somebody recently said, you're not a guitarist until you sell one guitar to make, uh, to make rent and then you buy it back at a later date or something like this. Wow. And okay. I couldn't relate to that because I've never had any of these experiences. Or you're, you're not a guitarist until a string breaks and you compensate for it and such and such. Well, all of these things are... Okay, great. I'm not a, I'm not a guitarist. And that I have this idea in my mind that I'm not a Yeah. Well, because it's you don't realize that people are listening in on your conversation. And if you think about like, you know, great pedagogues, um Guthrie Govan or or Paul Gilbert, you know, these people who uh are amazing, if you're not in that idiom, you think, well, okay, I'm not a guitarist. I'm just somebody who owns a guitar. I'm a guitar owner. That's what I am. You know. And uh and I think that that's one of the things I've been talking about recently with uh, Rick Beato, if you follow his channel at Absolutely all. Absolutely, we um, do, yeah. 
And so I've been saying, why don't you guys recognize that a lot of us don't know where we are? We're, we're certainly above some level, but we're below other levels. It's not that we've had a linear progress. And bringing the, the non-guitar guitar community, for example, in, because we, we watch these shows and we just, I, can I just say this, uh, the greatest delight for me is I'm sitting theoretically in the seat uh, where Nita Strauss and, and uh, Joe Satriani. Yeah, Joe Satriani I mean, was right there and he was in the same state and, and Nita Strauss as well. She was just on uh, last week. We had a, a really cool band meeting for those of you that are in the chat right now because we do have a, a live chat and I haven't done this, uh, you know, because we were so bogged down with getting the show started, I didn't really uh, give credit where credit's due. Our live chat over on the Ryan Roxy YouTube official channel, we're very happy to have you in there. Thank you very much. We appreciate you for listening to the audio broadcast, which is uh, Spotify and um, uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and all those. We really appreciate it. But we have... Eric Weinstein on the program here. You want to get in our live chat right now, just hit that subscribe button. And um, yeah, you're in that same position that Joe Satriani. In fact, that I think was one of the selling points to getting you on this show. Was well, it- no, 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 no. It scared the living crap out of me. I have such respect for these people uh, that, you know, one of the things you have to understand is that we who don't play in, in that idiom and at that level, um, we are very respectful, I think, in general. It's not a, it's not a Dunning-Kruger thing. But on the other hand, uh, you have to connect to those people. Like, you may know that you're not Jimi Hendrix, but when you pick up a Strat, it has special significance because that Strat has been imbued with mystique and mysticism. There's a, it's a talisman. It's, it's something magical and wonderful. It's one of the reasons that I'm so focused on we have to get our, our great musical instrument companies, I mean, Fender, Gibson, PRS, all these, you know, positive grid. I'm really excited about uh, getting people to reacquaint themselves with the magic of music that isn't coming through a computer, but is coming through your fingers. We are so much on the same page, so much and so that I actually have put together during this whole pandemic. um, I was working on it before and I was going to actually have it come out uh, later on in the 2020 tour before everything got uh, that trigger word postponed uh, for <laughs> us but uh it was ca- i call it and the whole team here that works on in the trenches as well as uh, the roxy guitar army we call it the system 12 guitar method and my whole point of putting together is that you should learn you should be able to learn the guitar within 12 weeks it's it's a 12 lesson course and i don't think that guitar or any instrument is as hard to learn as the teachers make it, as the institutions make it, as anybody says it is, because it is uh, easier than you think as long as you know a lot of the sort of life hacks, guitar hacks. And I was able to put all those sort of, you know, guitar hacks of my years of playing into this course. And I, and I know that you've learned more than just guitar this way and in sort of shortcuts ways. You've also learned harmonica, right? Sort of. I mean, you, you know, the thing about it is, is that uh, I, my, my nightmare is like Sugar Blue is out there listening. This guy doesn't play harmonica. You know, I, I saw you on Rogan. It sounded great, dude. And, and, oh. and I'm not oh, sure. If you, you, go ahead. I saw that you guys used You Gotta Move. Yes. Uh, to, uh, it was a beautiful touch. <laughs> I, it was like an inside thing. And I was hoping that you get it. But now oh, you dude. got it. Good. No, I was all over that. And, and it, it really, you know, the funny thing is that 
I, I probably have never really had a conversation about a song like You Gotta Move because I read about these things and I know that people who are in the music business talk about, you know, the old blues cats and, and, and jazz guys. But in general, in my life, nobody knows the music I listen to. So I never have conversations about Big Bill Brunzi. I mean, there's no, there's no sense of being part of a culture. I'm completely isolated. I did not know that the Rolling Stones covered that song on Sticky Fingers. Did you? Get your yayas out, it occurs. There it is. I love it. Yeah. All right. So be, that being said, because we are sort of the same genre, uh, age group, we're sort of the same era, same state, what were the bands that you were listening to growing up that really made you go, yeah, I like this music? Oh, geez. Well, you know, the one that got me for guitar, uh, Robbie Krieger of The Doors on the song Spanish Caravan, uh, took Isaac Albeniz's piano music, which uh, the Asturias uh, Leyenda, and I guess Segovia had transcribed it for guitar, and he used that as uh, as this motif. And uh, I've never heard anything. It's very close, actually, to Crazy Train in a certain sense. The main riff from <laughs> the beginning of that. And well, no, no, I, I think this is super important. The way in which the profane and the sacred interact in rock and roll. I mean, of course, Ray Charles did this with, uh, what did I say, with the church music and the moaning and groaning. Um, and I think maybe my favorite example of this, which I talk about sometimes, is ACDC's You Shook Me All Night Long uh, is very close to the most powerful sort of, I don't know, prayer recitation in Judaism, the Shema. Right? Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ehad yeah, you shook me all night long. I, I, I can't hear because... It, it shook me all have, night long in Hebrew. I love it. <laughs> well, but it, think about the guys from KISS, you know? I mean, Israelis, right? Absolutely. So there's a weird way in which um, all of this discussion about uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll and church and uh, transcendence and, you know... It's all wrapped up in the same thing, and you, it's not all about uh, about the rock and roll lifestyle as this gutter thing. It's also about the transcendence of the gutter and the, the way in which those two things collide. So I think that was uh, it was very important to me. The, the doors were big. Um, I didn't get ACDC in real time. I'm now a huge fan, but back then I thought it was really stupid. It was it was going to be a passing fad. So that clearly got that one wrong. Aerosmith. Uh, was was uh, was pretty large for me. Um, Aerosmith into- one or Aerosmith version two? See, because I always find that there, the the version one for me, just like the Bon Scott ACDC version, yeah. are, are they're they're closer to my heart. Rocks, but, Toys in the Attic, right? Those are all the Jack Douglas produced albums. But there are versions two of both those bands. If you you know, basically, you know, after Highway to Hell, there's you know. Um, what, what was the album? Oh my God! The Black Album, the biggest one. Um, Hell's Bells, uh, Back Black, um, Back in Black. Sorry, that album that is it was a whole new era because of Brian Johnson singing, and then and then with Aerosmith, right around a little bit, a couple years later. But when they started writing more pop hits, that was almost yeah. another version of Aerosmith as well. You know, something that was really big for me uh, was X. And X never really um, 
made it the way I was expecting them to make it. I went back and listened to uh, uh, Johnny Hit and Run Pauline, which I thought was incredibly witty and extremely disturbing. Do you, do you know that song? Yeah, X was one of those bands that would be constantly played on KRQR in Los Angeles. And I would K-R-O-Q. spend... KROQ. Yeah, KROQ. Was it KROQ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. KROQ. And I would I and I would go down to uh, Los Angeles and Huntington Beach during the summers because that's where my mom's family all lived. I lived in the, in the Bay Area, but um, that's where I was turned on to surf punks, uh, the missing persons, and you know X of course because and Plimsoll. So these were all bands that were being played always on K Rock. So I guess you grew up in that in that scene as well. That's true, but you know, the part of well, you know, a lot of it was sneaking into clubs um, back then. I left California when I was 16. So all of my California experiences had to be 16 and younger, which doesn't make any sense if I think about it. Um, I was really into George Thorogood, uh, but you know, my friends were listening to Elvis Costello or The Cars um, and you know, and then there were there were bands that didn't make it, things that I thought were stupid then, but I think are sort of more interesting now. Um, I do think that there was a lot of there was a lot of energy that I well, it, one of the things I've been discussing recently is is the way in which the blues has to animate a lot of what rock and roll is, or it becomes this other thing that I'm not sure how to relate to. Uh, that in essence, the blues has such a minimal set of expectations that it gives you a lot of blank. <laughs> well, that's the sort of the whole point. Twelve it could bars. be one chord. Could be one chord. Yeah, true, true. Right, yeah. and sometimes it could be one string. Um, you know, if you've ever seen John Lee Hooker live, uh, he could play, you know, quite a bit, but he could also just get it down to one string, and it could, he could hold your attention. I think that that because it clears out so much, it gives you the maximal amount of blank canvas, it's weirdly almost the most musically interesting because it's not telling you very much about what to do. And so in the hands of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan or or Gary Moore or Jimi Hendrix or whatever, you you get this idea of uh, somebody in a direct communication with the universe. They're just jacked into the cosmos. And uh, particularly in the sort of virtuosic uh, idiom and and I guess that for me has to deal with with maximal emotion and what what worries me a little bit is that I think we have in some sense better guitarists now than we've ever had and we're not choosing to listen to them in the same way with the same reverence and the same attention and I think this is something to worry about is it because of the of the platforms that they're presented on could it be because we have so much accessibility with with YouTube, and and I, wa- I do want to talk about YouTube, Spotify, and the whole difference. Whereas these older classic artists, they're on vinyl. You 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 recognize them. You remember them from being vinyl, cassette tape artists. Well, and you, you have an exact idea of how your record was scratched. Okay, here we're coming up to that pop, right? <laughs> um, no, I think I think this is important. It was a particular instance. Somebody said that a photograph is the photograph until you print it out and put it in a frame. Because what we do now is we, we have files and we don't treat them as photographs. We just take a ton of files and we say, okay, that's my album. But you haven't actually done what is necessary to activate that file and to create a photograph out of it. I think- Something tangible maybe. There's, in a certain sense. Um, 
and then there's there are other paradoxes. I think one of the paradoxes that I'm very, I find very funny is that I'm not I'm not positive that Eddie Van Halen would have been Eddie Van Halen without David Lee Roth because David Lee Roth put Eddie Van Halen in a package that that particular genius was well to use a to use a computer science term. David Lee Roth was the syntactic sugar for Eddie Van Halen. And that with stage clothes and leaps and, you know, songs that are danceable, uh, you would have a, a situation where many more people would hear that person than would hear John Petrucci. You don't know how happy I am to be breaking down these old school songs and music with someone, because you have such a rich knowledge with the back, you know, the backstory of your views about this type of music and stuff. And I'm going to, I'm going to get slaughtered in your comments, by no, the way. No, you're not. So. You're going to get, I honestly, you're going to get a lot of praise because you have the knowledge we'll of see. it. And you, you've actually really thought it out, which again, if, if it, from the top of the show, I said, you're one of the uh, more deep thinkers that we've had in the trenches. Although there's lots of stories that we have. And, and I've found that all the guests that come on our show do have a story to tell a lot of inspiring, you know, working their way all the way up to where well, they're at. Scratch a, scratch a musician, find a geek. I mean, I think that's <laughs> a very important idea is that you have all these people who are sort of the height of cool, but if you hang out with them, they're talking about their impedance issues in their amps, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. We and, can, we oh, can all, I actually have a, a, a system. I'm not going to use it with you, though. We have gear geeks and guitar freaks where we just break down uh, certain types of things. And, you know, You're I'm not going to talk, own, I'm not going to break down your Mexican made strat right now, although it did look very cool in the, in the uh, actually ad picture and stuff. But, folks, we're here with Eric Weinstein, and there it is. There's a nice picture of it. Uh, my question is, is, is music the only thing left? that isn't divisive anymore because I, I see it's totally divisive. Well, but, but when you, when you talk about a fan group, because yeah. you know, with, with, with my boss, with, with Alice, I have the, the, you know, the most conservative and most progressive audience all in one room at any given time, at any given city watching the show, everybody dialed in, to the music dialed into the sound. So I'm saying in that respect, is it the only thing that we can all agree on if we like a certain type of music anymore? Uh, well, it, it has a very special, I, I guess I disagree with it because I've gotten into such brutal arguments about, um, I, you know, you can get into an argument about which is the greatest guitarist in the Yardbirds with the Yardbirds fans and it, it can get pretty heated. <laughs> I, I, I think that... Um, I think music has a very special place in keeping society together like comedy does. And that we don't, we, in part, we allow these two things to sneak up and we treat them as somewhat frivolous. But I'm very worried about this particular moment. I keep making this point over and over again that uh, I don't think the music of our age is the music of our age. I don't think that the music we're listening to now is what we're supposed to be listening to. I think if you think about what's going on in society the inability of our musicians to figure us out and hold up to us what we can't see in ourselves. Uh, comedy lagged for a while. I think comedy is catching up, but there was a period of time where co comedians couldn't figure out how to tell a joke on a college campus without getting shut down. Because, yeah, they, so, they, they had a hard time actually doing what they do. Yeah, and I think, you know, Joe Rogan sort of said that 
to me that it was rough for a little while and then it became the golden age as the best people started pulling off the William Tell shots. And I, I recently heard this, uh, this song, um, uh, a young friend of mine, Sam Comfort, uh, turned me on to Polyphia and this song, Goat. And I just freaked out after a while. I mean, it really, it was so beautiful and so fractured and the, the virtuosity was sort of done as a throwaway. And you know the song? No, I haven't heard it yet. I'm going to check It'll it out. blow your mind, I think, I hope. And, right. and in so doing, it reminded me like, okay, well, this actually sounds like the music of my time. It's hyper complex. It's treated as if it's sort of in the gutter. I think it's filmed in a church, but it's, it's dusty. And it's, it's simple, complicated, virtuosic. And, the, you know, it's like the guys couldn't even bother to get dressed for the shoot. <laughs> Well, by the way, I'm happy you do disagree with me because it is sort of a rite of passage. If I would have gone with a whole Eric Weinstein uh, episode without you disagreeing with me, I'd feel something was wrong, and that's good. Because- <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying. I, I, when I when I say I'm disagreeable, it's not that I, I I generally think that music should bring us together, but I think that actually it is weirdly falling down on the job. Well, I agree very much in that sense where I've been thinking for a long time especially with 2020, there couldn't be a better time for a new rebellious Sex Pistols or Guns N' Roses or Nirvana to come out. And the the crazy thing is, I mean, this is what I was going to ask you about. There's a um, there's a new song that I that. I, I have, um, what's his name? Tom McDonald. I think that's what it is. Where did I have it in my notes right here? Uh, have you heard Fake Woke or any of those types of things? Oh, that, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that Well, that's me, pretty direct. Yeah. I, it's very direct, but I was expecting a Guns N' Roses, Nirvana sort of screw the system. I didn't expect it to come from a guy from Canada calling out both sides and then one side championing it as their own, you know? And, but I would also love to see more indirect uh, pot shots. Like, it took a lot of courage to say it. But the way in which, um, I don't know, you, you know the old story about waist deep in the big muddy was actually about Vietnam and, and becoming entangled in Southeast Asia. You know, there's a, a way of using metaphor and indirection in music that I think is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, the same way that High Noon isn't really a Western. It's actually about, like, the McCarthy era. Uh, you know, in, in a weird way, one of the things about music is is that it's not necessarily about what it says it's about. And, you know, I think about the way in which... Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with WAP at the moment. Uh, and, you know... Is that more shocking than ZZ Top singing Pearl Necklace? I don't know. Uh, you know, in a weird way, the layers of indirection actually make things more shocking. Well, you do have your finger on the pulse of a lot of, and that's what I appreciate you doing, is that you say, you're, you give your insights to a bunch of different uh, podcasts and platforms. I mean, obviously, you're, you're one of those uh, intellectuals that have, you know, you're you're long i've seen you again with jordan peterson have some really cogent conversations and you know it 
I like watching that as a high level, but at the same time, you also went on to the, you know, to the Logan podcast and you were in, you were defending basically, um, what was the story that you, the person that you defended? It was a, um, Riley Reed and you made a really great argument about, you know, her being a successful businesswoman that was getting, uh, sort of, you know, well, I mean, I had her on, on my podcast you as did. a guest okay. immediately after uh, Roger Penrose. And um, I thought that, you know, I found out that she was a Sam Harris fan. And I think that in, in, it, I think gr- that uh, sex work is an incredibly important sector of our economy to be looking at. And to have people who are thoughtful presented um you know, as my producer at the time said, everybody basically f- flirts with her when they have her on the show. And I had no interest in doing that. I really wanted to talk about uh, where where she was as a business person, as somebody targeted um, in her business so that she couldn't have business relationships. There's a whole issue about commercial banking, um, about Operation Choke Point. I'm very concerned about the way in which uh, OnlyFans and Seeking Arrangement are, are targeting uh, young women who don't have incredible economic prospects. Um, I, I both want sex work not uh, shamed, nor do I want to pretend that this is all just normal and fine. So these are these are very difficult issues. And uh, you know, to your point, uh, I was in it for the fart jokes when I went on <laughs> Logan. But but Logan's no dummy. You know, he's a smart guy, and he's 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 a he's a big brand in part because it's a combination of zany stupidity and, and cleverness uh, and understanding where the zeitgeist is. So I think that, uh, I don't know if I, if I take the, uh, the intellectual label so seriously, I do think that it's really just important to be a full human being and to try to, to evidence all aspects of that. Well, I'm just happy that you're in the same seat as Joe Satriani and you're not speaking out of the same mic that uh, Riley... Uh, made famous so that's an inside joke for those of you that want to go down that uh, Logan rabbit hole they will but uh, you do know a lot about uh, economy finances because uh, you've been working with the Teal uh, Peter Teal for for many years you guys have uh, a financial and I was in hedge funds before that and did work in economics uh, using gauge theory coming from physics to try to redo um, what was called the marginal revolution. So there's an interest in markets because markets are what suggest together. Do you find that now that whole field helps you with your podcast and helps you with everything that you do now online? No. Not at all? Not really. Um, you know, I, I think we're, we're all obsessed with money in a way that's really dysfunctional at the moment because the market isn't working as well as it used to. And as a result, people who can figure out how to get the market to work for them um, have taken on a, a, you know, it used to be lots of people could get the market to work well enough for them. And I think that increasingly uh, we don't find it very interesting if you're not absolutely crushing it. On the other hand, a lot of the people who are actually crushing it are really finding defects in the market and exploiting them, not necessarily productively. So I think it's really, 
I'm worried about our our uh, building a golden calf out of people who are succeeding in this particular market. I think that this incarnation of the market is not my favorite. In particular, I don't like guessing games about what the, what is the Fed going to do next? What's happening in China? Do you think the data is real? Uh, that's not as interesting as, um, I mean, it's interesting if you can play it and make money, but it's not interesting intrinsically to think about what's in the head of particular players as opposed to what's going on in innovation uh, in general or, uh, you know, financial inclusion or financialization. I'm more attached to trying to figure out if the market still really reflects us or is the market breaking down in late stage capitalism? I tried to uh, figure out technical trading for about, I invested two and a half years of my life doing it. And after that two and a half years, I realized it wasn't for me because it just, it, and, and it was, and it, it, it takes a lot more um, sheer, I, you know, you don't have to pardon the expression, but it takes balls to be a technical trader. That's true. I think it's also the case that a lot of us are devalued by virtue of the fact that we have skills that the market doesn't yet recognize as valuable. And so there's the whole issue, you know, I talk a lot about public goods. Um, public goods are things for which price and value are not kept together. And if you produce a lot of value, but you can't capture the value because uh, of some market defect, then the market sort of views you as a loser. And one of the things that's really important is how much talent is currently misca- miscast as loser in our in our current system. And, you know, I, th- I think it's if we don't watch that, it's going to be a revolution. I think that the number of incredibly talented people who have so much to give the world and who are so appreciated, who cannot capture the value that they create, uh, is an international scandal that um, people are afraid to talk about because if you if you complain about it, it must be that you're a loser. And so one of the things that I'm interested in is, is representing the loser community. I think that there's more talent in the loser pile than there is in the winner pile by far. And a lot of that is a mistake when you see somebody who's, you know, just incredible, like a, like a, like a musician. How many, if you think about um, Mark Knopfler, you know, yep. singing uh, about down in the tunnel trying to make it pay. And you think about all of the great musicians. Think about Joshua Bell's famous experiment where he was playing the violin in a metro station. And people could listen to one of the most sought after violinists in the world and just walk right by him. I used to watch uh, Tracy Chapman uh, playing and singing in the uh, arches of the Harvard uh, Cooperative, the Coop, yeah. uh, in Cambridge, and it used to break my heart. I would think, "Gosh, this uh, this unfortunate woman. She's such a talent. She could just catch a break. She could just catch <laughs> a break." And you know, it's like your your feet from Tracy Chapman, and it, it was clear. Now, if you take all of those people. Like Eva Cassidy, why isn't Eva Cassidy a billionaire? Why wasn't she during her lifetime? That that talent, Jesus, I just every time I put it on, I just I just I just come apart. And you know the fact that the market can't reward this stuff, in particular, what happened to music when music became files, because a file is uh, inexhaustible. You can play it a number any number of times, and the zeros and ones don't degrade the way vinyl does, and it's inexcludable. Um, because if there's no encryption on it, you can share it a million times. Uh, it constitutes a public good. And so musicians were some of the first people to get royally screwed by the so-called abundance economy. And you know, this is one of the things that's really important. What, what saves music is the ability to tour. Why? Because you can lock people out of a hall. And when it's over, it's over. 
And so those things allow you guys to charge for your services. But I want to get back to the point where we can charge for music. And we can at some level say thank you yeah. uh, with Through the Market for the fact that you, you've written the soundtrack of our lives. That is important. I think that for so many musicians, we forget that we're in the music business. And that's the biggest problem because we don't we have such a mind to create and to be artistic, not realizing that there are X's and O's that can actually be just as artistic if we could just take the time. There's a few well, rock stars out of there that can do that, but not, yeah, not but everyone. The, but part of the problem is, is that when you start having to talk about money, you degrade the experience. Right. Um, you know, do, do you know Suzanne Santo? She's been on Joe Rogan with uh, Gary Clark Jr. I do not. I've not heard of it. Sorry. Well, try listening to a song like Ghost in My Bed. Uh, it's just this haunting Americana of uh, love in the gutter uh, and, and, and its beauty and grace. And she has got one of the most haunting voices backed by her violin or guitar. And she was a friend of mine. And she came over, you know, and she gave us this concert in, in the little yard outside my house. And I just thought, like, how can I repay you? How, how can I possibly find a way in kind of saying to you how much this means to me? And there's no way of doing it, you know? And then, and then you, you cheapen it by, by sort of trying to put a dollar on it. If you guys have to talk about money, uh, then we don't have the same feeling because you're, you're singing about love, you're singing about heartache, you're singing about defeat. Um, you know, I think about uh, people who've pulled it off, like Tom Petty singing, I won't back down, you know? He went and, up against uh, all the record companies I'm, back in the day. Well, that's day. what I'm trying yeah. to say. You know, it, it, the A&R man says, I don't hear a single. The future is wide open. Uh, and, you know, the, the song I want to be played onto if I ever make it to the night show is Baby Even the Losers. Uh, I love that song. Absolutely. I think that that stuff is so ex it's so important. So if you think about about, you know, that ain't working. That's the way you do it. Mark Knopfler is musicians want to talk about this fact of we're screwed. And you're saying right now, the music that people are listening to is not the right, is not the, the music that people should be listening to. Cause maybe there should be more of that, a little bit of rebellious kick in the ass sort of, but unslight, a little bit underslighted sort of lyrics. Uh, you know, the things they do look awful cold when I look at our politicians, right? The ability to take a glancing line like that and not have to say the whole damn thing. Uh, the irony of that. I, I think you have to look at the fact that musicians are our historians as well. I mean, one of the things that I, I bring up now a few times when I talk about music is the number of musicians in the 60s who were talking against the protest movements. We're saying you guys are kind of out of control and you're not really making sense. And so those kids were their audience, but they were also chiding their audience. You know, I'd love to change the world, but I don't know what to do. So I'll leave it up to you. That, Who was the that last kind band that did something like that? Who was the last band that had a stand like that? Can you can you say in Pearl Jam? Well, so 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 I I don't know the reason. By the way, the, the last person who did this really effectively was Dave Chappelle. Uh, who said, you know, I'm going to do an impression. And he goes into this thing about, I'm going to ruin you. I'm going to destroy you, blah, blah, blah. Now, who am I? Doing? Everybody said, Trump. And he said, no, no, no. It's you, the <laughs> audience. Um, you know, I, or, by the way, Green Days, I hope you had the time of your life. Uh, that little F you, you know, at, at some level, 
Yeah, sarcastic, you, but the but, but well, no, no, it's, but it's sarcastic to everyone. We're all wasting our lives, right? I mean, it, I think that they they were including themselves in on the joke. If you look at the video for that, uh, good riddance. It's it's incredibly uh, self reflective. I, I think that in large measure, um, we in general are scared to say how how off everything is. We we are we are frittering away everything that we had built up. We are not passing things along to the next generation. And I'm just so, it's so important to me that these, I'm writing songs now about people who are freezing eggs and can't make the payments. Um, the, the way in which young men are not able to inspire young women and are dithering around uh, not forming families and, and the way in which we're all so caught up in in this moment. And I, you, you know, in some sense, how do you write a new song? How do you? Like, I, I'm just <laughs> well, struggling with, with freezing eggs, <laughs> hot legs. I don't know. <laughs> well, showing some leg and freezing my eggs <laughs> yes. because OnlyFans is going to be the solution to the problem of not being able to make the payments. So, damn it, you're already, you've you've got it half written already. All right, perfect. Can you hang out with us for a couple more minutes? We're going to take a really, really sure. quick break. Because you've been talking about the System 12, we talked about it earlier, and because we have Eric Weinstein here, um, pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, Vic, if you can, run a little bit of System 12 commercial for us, and we'll come back with Let the People Speak. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Eric. Hello, folks. Ryan Roxy here, and thanks for watching and supporting all things we are doing over here at the RGA, otherwise known as the Roxy Guitar Army Headquarters. We'd like to invite you to start your own guitar journey with the most comprehensive and easy-to-learn course that's out there today, the System 12 Guitar Method. I've taken my 40-plus years of experience of playing guitar and combined it with some of the best tech and guitar life hacks to come up with a system that'll get you playing not just the guitar, but entire songs in a very short time. Check out the links provided and make sure to enjoy the lessons. And of course, enjoy the ride. Now, back to the show. We try to keep it all quick here. And honestly, we try to uh, accept when it comes to our guests because, folks, today with us we have Eric Weinstein, uh, guitarist, pianist, harmonicist, but he's an imposter at all three. But Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but an imposter you man is a mandolin. Good if you want, really, really want to talk imposter, it's mandolin. But I'll tell you something. I am so excited about octave mandolins. We've got to get those into our world. Okay, you you, you know sound a little bit like my friend Eric Dover because he would be the guy. Eric Dover uh, plays in or played in Jellyfish. His you know, and he does a lot of solo stuff. Work just a genius musician. But whenever I would call him, we'd be talking. He'd be like, uh, he would be out. Uh, sort of recording birds and sort of looking at new sounds and, and techniques. And, and, and so I like that. It's the octave mandolin. We should look into yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Well, so yeah, yeah, just thinking about tuning in fifths, but with enough room that your fingers can actually fit on a fretboard. Uh, I don't know why people didn't invent this earlier. <laughs> Bet heavy. Go heavy on octave mandolins. That's your that's your financial advice right now. Yeah, they, they <laughs> traded at a discount. They're very hard to find. Well, I, you know what? There's people in our chat room right now. I, I I guarantee no people that know people. So here we are in the trenches. We have another little bit of an animation, but honestly, these are uh, 
questions from our just just a couple from our uh, guests that have been in the chat. Our producer uh, Vic has been compiling them, and it's a little segment we call "Let the People Speak." Come on, Vic. Our first question, though, and you might know the band, the London Choir Boys. Uh, it comes from the guitarist, lead guitarist of the London Choir Boys, uh, Guy Griff. He's been on the podcast before, a good friend of mine. He actually uh, emailed me this morning, and he was like, I'm so happy you're having Eric on the podcast. He asks, how do we end the charge of the Woke Brigade, and how long before they start trying to cancel rock and roll? All right. I mean, let's... let's Let's get me canceled by answering this question, <laughs> by the way. Dive into n- it. Nice, nice trap. <laughs> um, I think we have to realize two things. One is that we have to realize that woke had a point and that if you want to defeat woke, uh, you're going to have to listen to the point and not listen to the implementation that is trying to destroy anyone who refuses to see the point exactly the way the woke brigade does. So, for example, you know, when I talked about uh, being in the same seat as Nita Strauss and Joe Satriani, yes. I, I, Nita Strauss is incredibly hot. And hot is part of the appeal, just the way it was true for Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen was hot. I, I, I may be straight as the day is long, but sexuality and desire are inextricably woven through rock and roll. And if you can't talk about the fact that you know, I mean, Bonnie Raitt to me is incredibly hot. And, and, and Samantha Fish, who I didn't even know Samantha Fish existed. Holy cow, can this gal play the guitar uh, and sing? Um, we have to start realizing that part of the pleasure of human, being a human being uh, has to do with theater. And the theater of rock and roll, you know, of, uh, uh, of leather pants and, uh, you know, we were talking before about uh, Steven Tyler's scarves and the microphone stand and all David this stuff. David Lee Roth and, and all his. The, the pa- right. The pageantry and the fantasy life is in part very important to our reality. So fantasy and reality are supposed to be uh, intertwined. Now, a lot of bad things used to happen backstage. If you go backstage at a modern rock concert, you can take your kid there for the most part. Right. I don't know if the lawyers got there. Um I don't want to see random destruction, but I also don't want to see the thing completely sanitized. And, you know, I tell the story about Buddy Guy uh, going into the women's room with uh, an incredibly long guitar chord following this hot gal who disappeared in there. And then when she discovered that he was in there, she screamed and he mimicked every scream on the guitar. That was (laughs) not safe. It wasn't safe. And it wasn't, you know, if you had to defend that, You'd hear the nightly news story, you know, it's just like, uh, in a surprising incident, Buddy Guy entered a women's room, you know, creating an unsafe situation. On the other hand, that woman was laughing. It was probably, you know, one of the great moments of her life. She came out of it in a different way. Now, there's no way to figure out, was that actually safe? Because it wasn't actually safe. On the other hand, was it actually dangerous? I'm not really sure that it was actually all that dangerous either. What we're now trying to do is come up with rules rather than taste as the arbiter of whether something is good or bad. Um, And it's completely randomly uh, distributed. I was in Trader Joe's and people were playing brown sugar, you know? If they only knew, right? If they only knew. The lyrics, or some girls, 
I mean, like if somebody ever goes back to some girls, boy, we're all we're all toast. Um, <laughs> Has technology I, sanitized rock and roll, even though all the doors that it's open? Because there is this weird relationship that you say with rock and roll music and or just general music and, and technology. It's open doors, giving us wider audiences, but it's also sort of made everything much more sanitized, like you say. Well, but but, you know, in part. The longing, you know, the. The. Uh, the way in which uh, we play it being men and women, when in fact we're much closer to each other than we than, than we care to admit, uh, I think that you know, in a weird way, rock and roll exaggerated some of those differences theatrically, in order to uh, to explore things through the safety of the stage. Most of us were away from that. You know, you don't end up backstage at a rock concert usually by accident, and you probably have some idea. Uh, that you know you're, you're dipping into space that's a bit dangerous. So I think that there's a really difficult issue, which is that rock and roll is not supposed to be safe, nor is it supposed to be hell on earth. You know, I think that if you look at the scene in Almost Famous, that uh, will break everyone's heart—the poker game or whatever that was. Um, wow, you it's remember hard, that it's scene? Hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. well, who who can forget that scene because it's so effing disturbing? You know, so you have to both. Reckon with the fact that the woke brigade has a point and the fact that taking the fun and danger out of life is not the right way to explore that point. And you have to give us music that's worth taking risks over. I think it's, you know, in, in part, um, this is what has me trying to write music, which is how do I up my game? To, if, if I'm going to bitch about this stuff, uh, how do I scream about love, sex, desire, hope, fear, failure, all of the things that, that animate us and put it into some kind of incredibly uh, toxic cocktail that I can mainline into my veins. You know, that's that's what the soul of rock and roll is to me. What are you writing your songs on now? You writing what instrument are you writing your songs on? Guitar, piano, or harmonica, or is it octave mandolin? I don't have an octave mandolin. <laughs> all right, I, I tried to buy one. There was one mandolin We're in all of it. guitar We're working setting. on it yeah, in yeah. the chat to get to get Eric Weinstein an octave Stop. mandolin. But hold on, um, uh, what, well, what are you writing using your guitar? Songs on? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this guitar actually, you know, a classical because uh, it has enough. Uh, I, I don't know how to play with a pick. I realized two weeks ago that I didn't know how to play with a pick when this guy, George Marios, who was the guitarist for the Pineapple Thief, did an entire video lesson just for me. And I was embarrassed that I realized I have no idea how to use a plectrum. <laughs> All right. There you go. I'm, gonna, I'm giving this to you virtually <laughs> you, right now because... Um, yeah, you know, a plectrum is one of those things where, here's an interesting thing. Are you left-handed or right-handed? Right-handed. Okay. So, in a sense, you play guitar traditionally right-handed, right? But yeah. my theory is that you're doing it wrong. and Because okay. I'm left-handed, and everyone always asks me, they say, oh, you're left-handed. Doesn't that mean, you're, why don't you play guitar left-handed? Well, here's my theory. When guitar first started, in, in back in the day, Classical music was the the left hand was pretty much uh, stationary, and your right hand, which you needed all the coordination in, did all the arpeggios and all the finger picking for it. But with the introduction of the guitar pick, it sort of switched because all of a sudden this I hand just this. goes up and down, and and as you know, for you know us guys, I've never heard anyone say this, and I've always wondered about it. So, so being that this hand goes up and down, and that's all it does, and, and there's some that do it faster than others, all your 
really technical and coordination stuff is going up and down the neck because at that point with the evolution of the guitar um, and guys like Paul Gilbert and Ingve Malmsteen when they just started riffing oh up and God. down, they all of a sudden this hand became much more important. So I always tell people, if you're left-handed and you're playing traditional, you're doing it the right way. And fantastic. You've never, you've never ever heard of a left-handed piano. That's the other thing. <laughs> That's a really interesting point. Wow. If, if I gave you something to think about, damn it, I feel like I've accomplished something huge. Oh, no, no, no. This is huge for me, right? <laughs> well, we are going to move on. And actually, that wasn't a trap question by Guy Griffith. That actually, you answered it very eloquently, I think. In, no, no, no. It's the response to the, to the question that will be the problem. No, we'll, I, we'll see what happens. I think you answered it quite well. So the next question is well, maybe a little bit more of a softball coming from Hannah Cope uh, from our chat. She asks, did you enjoy appearing on Joe Rogan's podcast last year? Any future appearances planned? Uh, yes, there is a future appearance planned. Um, Joe owes me two appearances on my own program, but I haven't used it to <laughs> blow myself up yet. Um, look, Joe's amazing. And one of the things that you get, uh, you get to do when you're hanging out with him because he's just, he's an incredibly great guy uh, to hang with. Um, is you get to see, uh, I'm going to blow his cover. He's an amazing mind. He pretends that he isn't. But one of the reasons that that show works is that that brain is, uh, is something else. And, you know, it's, it's hard because it's not exactly in, in the idiom of most intellectuals. And if I were to call Joe an intellectual, he'd just have make merciless fun out of him, so I'm not <laughs> going to do it. But uh, he's one of the smartest guys out there. And people just wonder, like, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. He's a meathead. He's a regular Joe, and he just has the biggest show in the world. It's like... But doesn't that have something to do with what you said earlier about not staying in your lane? Just being able to do whatever you do want to do, whatever you're, you know, interested in. You are never more than a few clicks away from something that Joe knows a lot about. And that's one of the reasons that he can, I mean, just think about how many hours he's, he's put out there on how many different topics yeah. and how, like the thing that I envy the most is his own ability to get out of the way of his guests when he'll steer them to something which makes them look good. And so in a weird way, he's that kind of, I don't know, that Larry Bird player that makes everyone else on the team play better. And so people people like themselves better when they're on Joe's show because in part you don't realize that you're getting this tremendous assist. And boy, could I use a tremendous assist. So yeah, I kind of love it. That's uh, and, and really good bourbon, I've been told uh, as well. That's what my, my sort of black cup, it's evening for me. Here. I never got the blunt. You know, <laughs> and or or the or the uh, fire uh, extinguisher with Elon. I see it. I see it. <laughs> fire extinguisher. No, no, the fire flamethrower. Flamethrower. That's yeah. right. The, actually, I think it's called not a flamethrower. Exactly. Says so not a flame. <laughs> fire yeah, extinguisher. Exactly. The exact converse of a flamethrower. I got it. All right. So our last question. I feel I'll have our producer because he's usually really embarrassed to come on screen because he actually wrote the question. He actually wanted to have the question. I'm going to have him come on screen and ask. It to you himself. Uh, oh, now look at him. He's getting ready. He's putting on, on his Vic. makeup. <laughs> He's laughing at me. But uh, Vic Chalfont, our producer, has a question for you. The last of it. There you go. I was turning off my heater because I have a little space heater in here and I didn't want it making noise. 
This is a very international show, by the way. I'm in I'm in Sweden. Vic, our producer, is in Arkansas, and Eric is coming from an undisclosed. Uh, Eric Eric is coming from some undisclosed location somewhere in California. But I, I I've seen you on the portal on your own podcast with uh, that background before, so I think we know it, where it is. Uh, what's your question, Vic? So I was just curious because I know you were a financial advisor and <clears throat> did a lot of that sort of stuff. And so I, I wondered what your take was on the Reddit GameStop, uh, GameStop stock uh, boost that happened recently. Well, it's, it's very weird because, of course, you know, uh, hedge funds aren't necessarily hedge funds. Um, they often have pension plans, but we hate the hedge fund managers so much that we're all sort of rooting even hedge fund managers are rooting to have other hedge fund managers take it on the chin. I think this is, you know, there's a revolution afoot. And I've, I've called it the N-squared revolution because before, uh, recently, it wasn't kinetic. It, there wasn't that much street violence. We had some street violence this last year. Um, people are pissed and people have every right to be pissed. And one of the things that's got me most pissed off is listening to the establishment say, oh, my God, uh, the little people have discovered the fact that they can do what the big people do, which is manipulate markets. And it's like, hell yes, they're not the little people. Uh, we should have repossessed the Hamptons uh, in 2008. <laughs> no, I, I, seriously, I called for, call it to, for, for turning it into Clawback National Seashore. And we should have all of these beautiful homes uh, so you could tour them just like you're in, in uh, Rhode Island uh, in Newport. Uh, in essence, uh, we've got a kleptocratic elite which are not elite at all. We keep calling them elite, and I, I don't know why we bother to do that. We're, we're ruining the word elite. We have elite surgeons and elite special forces. These people aren't elite. They're 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 uh, they're goddess. They're chores. They're they're uh, they're thieves. And in in a certain sense, um, frauds. You said. <laughs> well, you have to appreciate that in in part as you know. I had a I had a hedge fund myself. We were trying to do things. Uh, honestly, but we didn't even know who our value sources were. At some level, you see a trading pattern and you go after it. And the, and the theory of the market is that all you're doing is making things more efficient. But uh, the predatory institutions, the really big hedge funds, the really large investment banks uh, have a terrible culture. They've financialized our world, forced us all to go through them. And they have an idea that they're allowed to manipulate the markets and we're not. And so I, I had a I admit I was sort of, you know, running around the house in my underwear cheering for these guys, not even knowing whether that really made sense or whether it was a good idea, just because I'm so interested in having some of these people take it on the chin. There you go. And, you know, and, and I, right now I'm having my moment with the Bitcoin community where uh, they need people to be their antagonists. So I'm not a Bitcoin. Uh, they don't. I'm not a Bitcoin critic the way they think I am, but their, their whole thing is like, you know, Bitcoin doesn't need you, you need Bitcoin, and don't be a bullshitter, you know, show us your portfolio and all this kind of stuff. Is it is they're, Bitcoin they're, going to be, is Bitcoin going to be, or is it is it going to be the next one, or is it always going to be the second in line? Because it's always really good, in, at least in rock and roll, it's always good to be the second band. Yeah, um... I think Bitcoin really has a special place because it's not trying to do more than what it is in a weird way. Uh, and my belief is that Bitcoin is really a play on the corruption of our institutional class. So the uh, you think about Janet Yellen versus Satoshi. 
Janet Yellen is yelling at Satoshi. And Satoshi, we don't even know who Satoshi is, right? (laughs) Satoshi's just kicking Janet Yellen's ass. And that is exciting uh, because what, what, what you have is you have this, this class of people who have a printing press. That's their major tool. They can change the law. They can, they can prosecute you. They can print money, devalue the money that's already there. They can, give, uh, they can transfer wealth from person A to person B, claiming to be uh, doing something like stimulus or relief. What the hell is relief or stimulus? It's transfers of wealth, right? right. Um, Bitcoin is basically a discipline. It is uh, what I've called the relationship with the unforgiving. Bitcoin is like the honey badger. Bitcoin doesn't give a shit. And that, that indifference, that cold-hearted indifference, is in part what is empowering the Bitcoiners. And yes, they're completely out of control, and they're ridiculous, and they're, uh, they're like bad children. On the other hand, they understood something that was really important, which is the main selling point of Bitcoin is the utter utterly undependable nature of our institutional class, which is thoroughly corrupt. And the more corrupt they are, the more Bitcoin is going to go up. Well, I can tell you this. My, my Bitcoin uh, investment has finally paid off all the debts that I had incurred trying to learn technical trading, which I, again, stepped away from because I found it wasn't for me. But, you know, and I will still hold on to it because I do feel that it does have some sort of longevity. And uh, we it shall could see. go way, way higher than it is now. Especially once it runs out, right? Once it's, it's, it's a mm, finite. Think or, about it. Think about it differently. Think about it as it's not when you see the Bitcoin price, that's a two sided thing. And what you the great value of it is you're short the dollar. And you know that these people don't know what they're doing at the Fed. The central bankers don't know what they're doing. So you know what they're going to do? They're going to print. And Bitcoin is in part valuable because it's not going to print. It's going to do what, it, what it's going to do on a regular schedule. And the confidence that you have that these people have one basic trick up their sleeve, which is seniorage, the theft of you're going to take money away from everyone who holds dollars and give it to whoever you give new dollars to just by running your printing press. And so that's sufficient to say that the Bitcoin price uh, is really an exchange rate. And it's the fact that you're short the dollar that is animating BTC. But there's no doubt that that Elon's investment in Bitcoin, and I know folks, this goes a little bit off the usually Fender and Gibson talk that we have <laughs> weekly here or rock and roll stories of tour buses, but it's, it's more rock and roll and interesting to me just to talk about this with such with in a mind like Eric Weinstein, um, Elon's investment to me sort of leveraged his company so that his company wouldn't fail as well. Will there be other companies that do the same, which accept Bitcoin pay? Well, he's using mimesis. He's using mimetic desire. So the idea that we want to ape Elon, hey, Elon's got rockets. You know, rockets look like guitars. They're 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 long <laughs> and thin, right? Uh, you know. And he, he put a convertible into space, you know, with David Bowie playing in the background. That's true. Okay, so now the idea is we all want that kind of uh, Elon cool, because really what we're trying to do is we want to we want to make love to Robert Downey Jr. as uh, as Iron Man, you know. So at some level, he's using that mimetic desire to um, 
to do what Bitcoin is going to do anyway. In other words, but by virtue of the fact that this thing is short the incompetence of our aging institutional class, uh, Elon is helping it along. But I don't think Elon is central, unless he's Satoshi. Uh, I don't think he's central to the story. Shit. All right, I see Kanak has a decent question. Should I post it? Well, Ryan may have dropped something. I'm no, I to dropped my microphone. Oh. You know, it, it, because I got so excited about, is he just... He is a ghost. He is. But uh, so Kanak is, is, is always, he helps out a lot with our uh, putting out your uh, sort of promo for our podcast today. Kanak is, is uh, from India. Sir, would you like to share any advice for engineers, uh, freshers who want to walk down the path of mathematics, stats, artificial intelligence, and maybe pursue a PhD or job in the same field? Oh, boy. Um we both need you and we don't need you. And this is really the, the tough part. We need people to go into these fields and we need these fields to pay really, really well because these skills are fungible. And right now what we want to do is we want to exploit you. Um, so don't let the market turn you into a subroutine so that somebody can snap their fingers and say, get me a rocket scientist, uh, mathematician, data scientist, then they'll give you what seems like a really nice salary for a young person, very little uh, uh, upside, and then they'll work you very hard or they'll put you as a postdoc. We've got a huge problem. Uh, The thing to do is that we've got to bring science employers to their knees. And if we can do that, then you should go into these fields and work your ass off and try to accelerate the path um, by skipping over various steps. We teach you calculus way too many times. We teach you pre-calc, then we teach you calc A, B, B, C, then we do uh, like single variable, multivariable, vector ve- calculus, and real analysis. Uh, it's enough. We should effectively compress these sequences for people who can handle abstraction, tell everybody else uh, that we're going to give you a different version of the calculus. But people who can handle abstraction should be brought rapidly to the forefront um, and so it's not such a crushing decision early in life. I think that it's very good if you want to become entrepreneurial. At the moment, very few things are working. And so the entrepreneurial avenue uh, is one of the only things that is still working. Um, but what we should do is we should make it safe for you to enter these fields, uh, compressing the length of time it takes and making sure that you get paid shit tons of money by people who have gotten used to the idea that PhDs are a dime a dozen and a commodity and that we can always flood the market uh, whenever we need to make sure that they have no power at the bargaining table. So it's a very difficult recommendation. We need you and we also clearly indicate that we don't want to pay you. And so it's a very dangerous thing to enter. I hope that's helpful. Thank you very much. Can act just on my end. Uh, I do need you still to help promote the show like you do every single week. Thank you very much, as well as you, Federica. And so, and you know, you don't get paid. A do you shit have an Indian audience? <laughs> huh? Do you have an Indian audience? Um, we have an international audience because the good people of uh, because Alice Cooper uh, has commands an international audience. We have people. I think right now, if you want to sort of. Uh, chime in on the chat we have australia represented india represented uh south america represented specific question because i've been on this clubhouse app where my follower count is growing faster than twitter by 
a good amount. Exponentially, and, right? I know. It just yeah. went zoom, right? You said something like 2.1 million? Yeah. They were neck and neck like last month where I've been stalled out below half a million on Twitter for a long time. The, how did that um, crack? The, how did you do that? Because it is an invite only app. And I just, um, I got the invite a couple weeks ago and then I just joined up and I will obviously try and. Uh, one of the best things on that app is the South Asian music room. Okay. Uh, you have got kids from all over the dia- the Indian di- di- diaspora who are freestyling and riffing um, using uh, Hindustani classical, Carnatic music, um, Bollywood as, a, as their well. And the instruments are slightly shifted. You know, you, you're going to get rabab, harmonium, sitar, santur, uh, sarod. But... Um, What's going on there is so rich. And I just was hanging out with a bunch of them in a closed audio room uh, where one of the gals uh, started doing, uh, you, they do the Saregam thing where instead of Dori Mi Fasoliti Do, do they do Saregama Pada Nisa. And they sing and they scat with the actual note values. And she started riffing off of Dave Brubeck's Take Five uh, because in part, the, these funny time signatures that to us are very much more understood and intuited because North Indian rhythm is the envy of the world. It's just the most advanced rhythmic system you'll ever find. And so in a weird way, um, I think that the whole thing that happened between um, like Ravi Shankar and Yehudi Manuin only went so far. And then tabla beat science behind... Uh, Zakir Hussain, arguably the greatest drummer of our time, um, was very interesting. But I think what these kids are going to do is these kids are going to take the their knowledge of this alternate classical music, which is much closer to jazz because of the the importance of uh, mirror neurons and improvisation. Um, And they're going to find more meaningful connections between East and West, between uh, you know, the bridge on an Indian instrument is curved to get it to buzz, that sitar sound. Yes. And so if you think about, it's like natural distortion built in. <laughs> and the, the ability to bend on a very high metal fret where you can both bend up and down, but you can also bend in because the frets, you know, are really supporting. My guitars string. do that every single winter in Sweden because of <laughs> the humidity. <laughs> well, but what I, what I want to see is why is it that like, do you do you have an idea of the top ten Bollywood songs? Absolutely not. I do. So not. So that's this is a major missed opportunity. They're they're incredibly rich and interesting. The way in which the classical and they've been mining us for years while we've been ignoring them. True. So I'm really excited about uh, trying to get some of my music geeks. Maybe you'll come on the app. I'm going to try to get Rick Beato to do it. Maybe go after Adam Neely. And to try to get these these uh, diaspora uh, South Asians in dialogue with uh, rock and roll and find more meaningful connections than were found when we tried to pioneer this 50 years ago. You should get our buddy Adam Reeder on as well. He's the professor of rock. And I'm not sure if you've ever gone on to uh, YouTube and seen the professor of rock. I don't know the professor of rock. Yeah, he's really great. So he would be another good one. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not intimidated. I'm not disheartened. I'm just schooled because you are 
friggin' schooling my ass on music today, and I love it because there's so many things I'm going to go back and watch the show myself, take some notes, the names that you um, have mentioned, plus these ideas, because you're exactly right. This is so many uh, other cultures have been sort of studying American music, and we well, haven't. But, but we, we absorb it. Like, if you think about Paint It Black, right? I see a red door and I want to yeah. paint it black. It lingers a half step below what I think the tonic would be, and it stays there comfortably, you know, which is like, it's a little weird. And it has that kind of Indian. Uh, yeah, know, but that's just one harmonic minor scale with. No, 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 no. <laughs> right. But then, like, even a very simplistic thing like uh, the James Bond theme is actually taken from a failed musical for V.S. Naipaul's uh, A House for Mr. Biswas. And originally its lyrics were, I was born with an unlucky sneeze, and what is worse, I came into this world the wrong way around. Like, the whole thing is clearly Indian, and you've never realized that what animates, like all that spy music with all of these uh, chromatic tricks, you know, blues and chromaticism, um, in that case, what you're really hearing is a sort of an Indian sensibility uh, or a Middle Eastern or gypsy sensibility, which is like, you know, coming from the, the Miserloo. Miserloo is very close to uh, Hava Nagila, right, with that oriental second between the flat second and the major third. Like you say, those chromatic half steps. And then the way in which these guys interleave the uh, the major and minor tonalities. So there's this whole system, like you were talking about, the harmonic minor. The, 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 the fact that there are different versions of the minor that are different as you go up, as you go down, they call this uh, a, row of, a row of row, where the scale changes, the raga changes depending on which direction you're going. And so I, I really think that in part, um, rather than treating this as a novelty, uh, we should be mining this as a huge source of ideas. And it just, for some reason, hasn't happened yet. Wow. And, and you know what? All my favorite solos come from five notes, the pentatonic. <laughs> At least the well, ones that I've written as well. Well, but I, but I bet they don't. I mean, I think that one of the things that's so beautiful is uh, if you look at, um, who's this guy? I'm Jacob Collier uh, okay. in the UK. So he's focusing us on the fact that it's absolutely essential to realize that we're imprisoned by 12 tones. So you have this 12, uh, 12 week yeah, system, yeah, yeah. right? Well, it's a 12 system because there is only 12 notes in, okay, but you're why? tell me that, well, because... Why, why 12? Okay, be, well, because there's 12 notes on the guitar neck. And now I know you can notes? bend it. Okay. Why are there 12 notes? Starting from your open string yeah. all the way up to those double dots, and that and that actually simplifies the guitar neck for many people. But it's it's the twelfth root of two that is causing this to happen. In other words, it is peculiar to the twelfth root of two that if you take nineteen of those increments, that's almost exactly equal to three. It's just below the value of three, and that's only true for like twelve and fifty-three. There's a fifty-three notes gives you an almost perfect fifth. So the real rule is that you have to have perfect octaves and you have to have something so close to a perfect fifth that you can call it a perfect fifth, even though that's a total lie. And 12 is the magic value. I think 29 is the next value that gives you a very weird approximation to the perfect fifth and then 53. And that 29 gives you a worse third. Our third is so far off. The reason that blue third, you talk about the pentatonic where you're bending that, that minor third, um, 
is the Pythagorean tone is between the major third and the minor third. It's closer to the major third, but it's really far away. Our ear can hear that difference. It's sour. And that's why <laughs> you that You see what happens when I get a mathematician on my show that just blows up my system 12. Vic, but Vic, Vic, <laughs> can, you take, can you take two, raise it to the 19th power and, uh, and uh, take the 12th root of that on a <laughs> He's computer? He's shaking his head completely. No. <laughs> I love that, but we don't even realize why 12. Now, now I know. Now I know it's increments. Of, so 12, 29, and 53. Folks, stay tuned for my next uh, 29th system. You see, with 53, you can make a fortune. <laughs> working my way up. Working my way up. All right. So we are now heading out to the highway. There it is. There, Kanak again, is uh, he's giving you some Came back through and forth. for us. Yes. And I, I don't know if he's correcting you or not correcting yep. you at this point. No, no, he's, he's giving me the Hindi or the Sanskrit. I'm not sure which. I love it. I love it. So there it is, folks. We have spent some really quality time with Eric Weinstein. We did something. No, no. We've actually learned. I've learned a lot. Hopefully you've learned my, you know, my very simple thing of why I'm left-handed and play guitar traditionally. I love that. Okay. That was great. I hope that's your takeaway. I have too many takeaways to, to actually have. Um, this is called Heading Out to the Highway. If you can, uh, obviously with 2.1 million Clubhouse followers and uh, YouTube followers, you don't need everybody to uh, come on board. But I think a lot of people in our chat would like to find out more about you. Um, how? What's the best way to get in touch with Eric Weinstein? Uh, I leave my DMs open. I, it's not very responsible of me, and I don't answer or read every one, but I try to sample them. And, uh, you know, the other thing is to go to, to I think, ericweinstein.org and leave us your email address. Um, I think there's a Facebook group for the portal, uh, which I have not been doing very actively. There's really only me, so there isn't an organization behind it. Uh, but if you will attempt to send me a DM or to sign up at ericweinstein.org and find uh, the portal.wiki uh, gives you an idea of some of the crazy things that we're into. And we, we would, you know, one of the reasons we were eager to do Ryan's show uh, is that it's incredibly important to support our musicians during what has been a brutal year where people can't really easily charge for their music and they can't easily tour. And uh, it's so important for people who are actually still playing instruments and who still have the, the love to, to keep this thing going so that it doesn't all become formula and computer and, and the market. So uh, this is just out of a gratitude for, I can't believe a, a guitarist this talented uh, saw me on Instagram uh, screwing around uh, <laughs> with a little bit of blues and, and invited me on, on the show. And so I just, I wanted to say thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. And the future for you is writing songs. You did mention that a little bit. Is that is? Can we look forward to some sort of release coming out? I don't know how to do a release. So if you if you don't mind giving me an idea of how one, uh, one of the songs I can't really even play because it's a little too it's above my ability to actually pull it off. But uh, I would love to talk to you privately, and maybe uh, maybe you'll help that along the way. Be be a midwife. Would love to. And if you need a guest solo or anything like that, I would definitely be honored. That would be awesome. So Eric Weinstein, hang on uh, the list for just one second. And folks, this, honestly, this has been, of all the episodes I've done in the trenches, which is a musical podcast, this has been the most musical talk that we've had um, of our guests. 
and I and I love it, and I've really had a good time doing it. Um, next week we do have um, if Vic has that shot up. Oh, he does not have the shot up, but we do have uh, Susie Quattro coming on next Tuesday. Uh, yeah, so maybe Eric will come back for that at one point. But um, I appreciate you can find Eric Weinstein, especially if you get into Clubhouse as well. I will probably be there a little bit later on in the evening. As as always, folks, appreciate you guys supporting the show. Appreciate you guys supporting everything we do with System 12 and everything at the RGA. Again, if you can, subscribe to that uh, YouTube official show. Uh, you've been hanging out with myself, Ryan Roxy, and our guest, Eric Weinstein. Um, until next time, folks, enjoy the ride. Have a great one. In the Trenches with Ryan Roxy. Hello. Moby, give him his guitars back. Thank you so much, ma'am. Thank you so much. Dude, thank you. I really that, appreciate it. That was it's really totally, well. Totally man. new I mean, world. It's really good. I mean, it's it's for me, it's like it's so cool to be able to talk about topics that I basically watch in the other room, you know, most of the day. You know, I, I, I'm you have your finger on the pulse of so many issues, so many things. And I love oh, the fact thanks. that you're sharing your knowledge with like, you know, people that are not uh, as nuanced as you are. Uh, you know, I can't tell you when you get invited into a world that seems so remote and so unreachable. Uh, it's like an, it's an incredible honor that uh, you know, I grew up with Alice Cooper in the background and, <laughs> you know, looking at these guitar antics. When I first talked to, to Rick Beato and I found out he knew who I was, I was... You know, I've hung out with Robert Downey Jr. It's yeah. cool. It's amazing. But I wasn't shocked in the same way that like Rick Beato knows who I am because of the technical level of, of detail. And, yeah. you know, at some level, this thing about scratch a musician, find a geek, uh, that's, the, that's the thing that really blows me away. It's just the, the sheer amount of knowledge, time, dedication. Every musician is a historian, an engineer, a theorist, a mathematician of some sort, you know, mod 12 arithmetic. And, yeah. uh, you know, just thank you for, for, for taking the risk. 